I want to start with a couple uh, fun facts about Carl. I know that's why you come on Sunday mornings. Fun facts about Carl. Maybe more embarrassing stories. There's really, there's not, well, we'll see. Um, I've said this before. I'm a, I've been kind of a lifelong journaler for, for long back in my memory. Um, I've had a journal. I've kept a journal. It's not like an everyday thing, but I pretty regularly pull it out and, and write in it. And I find that practice to be a really um, effective way to understand myself better. I'm, I'm always surprised at what I find when I write. Um, it's an effective way to kind of process my life, the, the things I'm going through, the world around me. Uh, but something I've not really talked about much is that uh, as part of my regular journaling practice, I've, for a long, long time, I've often found myself writing poetry as a way to try to express with words what's going on in life. You know, sometimes prose just doesn't get the job done, so, I, so I've written poetry. Um, but here's the thing. For as long as I've written poetry, I've almost never shared my poetry with anybody. And that's kind of funny because I'm a writer. I write a sermon on a somewhat regular basis, and I don't know if you know this, I do in fact share that writing with people on a regular basis. But for some reason when I write a poem, there's just this thing inside of me that's like, ooh, I'm, I'm going to keep that to myself. But it's good to share with others who you are. Can I, can I get an amen? That would be encouraging to me. If I, okay? It's good to share with others who you are, even if, even if that can be scary at times. So um, I'd like to read you a poem that I wrote. Uh, I wrote it this week, and uh, the title uh, is called A Poem About Poetry. It's, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, and I think it'll be uh, pretty relevant to the sermon, but I'll leave that for you to decide. Um, here we go. Let there be light, God said, because words create worlds. And so, poetry, this spilling of ink, flooding pages, words flowing, sometimes absurd or audacious. What do we make of these phrases, skin stained with ink, the scribbles of everyday sages, pouring life's water out for man or God to hear? Water flowing, the rapids of rivers, lapping of oceans, the gentle movement of a lake in a summer's breeze may be comparable to the beauty of an angel's chorus. With words, poets take the water of soul and splash in it. They make it to move against the riverbanks of life. Here's what I want to invite you to consider. Maybe, maybe you've written poetry before. Maybe you've never written poetry before. Maybe you're like me and you've done it, but you wouldn't ever share it with people because there's just this weird thing about creativity. Uh, I'm going to ask you to try something. Would you consider try writing poetry 
That's my invitation that I want to set over both this and next week's sermon. And I mean that in two ways. I'm going to, I'm going to make an invitation. First, um, if you've never done it, try writing a poem. Like seriously, get, a, get out a, a piece of paper or a notebook or a napkin and try writing a poem. And if you write it and you look at it and go, that's bad. I would never, ever do that again. Just know that the greatest poets in history would resonate with you because that's what everybody says. If I showed you the multiple pieces of paper that represented my many drafts of this poem, there would be more scribbles than words on the paper because it's amazing how easy it is to create something and think that's kind of bad. It's just amazing how quickly we go there. So try writing poetry. I think it's a, I think it's a good spiritual exercise. And if you do, uh, share it with me. I'd love to read your poetry. Uh, one person after the first service said they were going to send me a poem. I said, that's, I'm ex- I look forward to reading it. But second, I mean this in a metaphorical sense. I've kind of hinted at it already, but I think we can consider our lives that the very act of living, breathing, choosing, thinking, speaking, acting, we can consider our lives as a work of poetry. And it's that metaphorical idea of living life as trying our hand at writing poetry that I want to set out before you as I read our scripture for today. We're reading uh, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. encourage you to flip there in your own scripture if you've got a copy and you'd like to. Otherwise, the words are on the screen. But these are the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians, chapter 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that In the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Would you pray with me one more time? Um, God, there's so many voices in our world. There's so many loud, clamoring voices, just screaming messages at us every day. And, And far too often, these voices are not helpful or encouraging. They don't give us guidance. They don't give us direction. These voices... Man, they can can just weigh down on us and and burden us. Help us, God, to silence 
that cacophony in our world. And, and this morning, help us to hear your voice. God, these words were written so that we might know the sound of your voice and know the words that you speak. Help us to let the words of Scripture be like a light shining in front of us so that we can make our way down whatever path we're walking. Amen. Um, there's this phrase in the, in, the last, in the last sentence of that passage I just love, right? We are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship, craftsmanship, handiwork. The Greek word for that is poema, which literally means something made or created or crafted. You know, there's something I think really always awe-inspiring about looking at something that has been beautifully and wonderfully made by an artist with great skill to make it. It just so happens that my wife and I were at the Denver Art Museum last night for uh, an event with our kids' school. And I don't know a lot about painting, but I got to see some paintings by Monet. And, and whether or not you know or don't know, you look at it and you're like, wow, this is beautiful. All of you this morning have already seen some incredible craftsmanship, because many of you know this, but David, our worship pastor, the acoustic guitar that he was playing this morning, he built it with his own hands. Did you know that humans can do that? I, the other day, hung a swing in my basement. I cut a hole in the ceiling. I put the swing in the, in the joist, and I wanted to patch the ceiling, so I just was going to cut a little square of wood. I couldn't even get it square. It was like square-ish. It was square adjacent. It was not square. But David made that thing. Wow. When you get to look at a beautiful piece of art, something created by a craftsman who has great skill, it's awe-inspiring. So think about this. You are God's workmanship. What kind of workmanship? Well, you see the Greek word poema, and it pretty obviously, you know, pretty apparently comes clear that that is the same word from which we in English get poem, poetry, poet. So here's what I want to suggest. Just like I wrote a poem and I said, you know what, I, I don't usually do this. I have all sorts of, you know, complicated things inside. I'm, I'm going to share it. God wrote a poem, and he wanted to share it with the world. And that poem is you. And so here's the question that I want to try to answer. Because this is a little bit of a weird, abstract thing to think. Like, God, you're, Carl, you're telling me that, God, that my life is a work of God's poetry. Like, I, I don't know. It's a little too abstract for me, Carl. I operate in the concrete. So here's what we're going to do together for the rest of this morning and again next week. We're going to ask a question. If it's true that we are a work of God's divine poetry, what does it look like? To live my life in that way. I mean, what does that mean? How do I do that? What does that, what does that mean practically? Because I'll be honest, I don't feel like a piece of poetry. I feel like a human body. That's what I feel more like. That's what we're going to talk about. And I'll be honest, Ephesians 2, man, I think I could preach this passage every week for a year and not run out of just depth to explore. Um, but instead of trying to, to dig into all the different ways we can answer this question, I picked the divinely ordained number of points for a sermon, uh, which is three. Uh, so I want to try to answer the question, 
with three observations. What does it mean? What does it look like to live my life as divine poetry? Here's the three things I want to talk about. It looks like confession. It looks like celebration. And it looks like decision. Let's dive in. So the, the, the passage as a whole is just this kind of stirring, exciting, kind of evocative text. But it starts in sort of a heavy way, right? The opening sentence. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul is talking about something that, a theme that shows up across scripture. We live in a broken world. Anybody here uh, had any trouble seeing in the past, you know, day, week, minute, hour? Has anybody had trouble noticing that we live in a broken world? I mean, you don't have to look far. You don't have to read many newspapers. You don't have to turn on many screens. You don't have to walk around too much to see, oh, what scripture says is true. My eyes confirm are true. We live in a broken world. And the brokenness isn't just out there. When we're honest with ourselves, we are broken people living in a broken world. And the weight of sin is a heavy thing on our planet, on us as humans collectively, and on us individually. And Paul, trying to capture the weight of this thing the Bible calls sin, he uses this word. He says, we are dead in our sin. Now, Vol, you know, gallons of theological ink have been spilled discussing exactly what Paul meant by this idea that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. But I want to, um, I want to simply illustrate what I believe to be, he's trying to tell us that sin is a big problem. And here's, here's a little thought experiment for you because uh, it can be, I don't know, it can be weird, it can be uncomfortable, it, it can be, we don't, we don't, if you're like me, I don't really want to like think about the weight of sin. I don't find myself going like, ah, it's Friday afternoon. I'm going to kick back. What am I going to do with my free time? Oh, I'm going to think about the weight of sin. That's what I'm going to do with my free time. No, I like to think about more pleasant things. But here's why it matters. However, however big you think sin is, however big of a problem it is, however, however heavy of a weight you think sin is, If God has saved us from sin, then however big the problem of sin is, that's about how big the goodness of God is. You could just kind of illustrate it simply like this. If if sin is small, then my understanding of grace is small. If life is a highway, I don't know if it is, but if it is, and some people have suggested that it is, right? If life is a highway, and I'm driving down the highway, and sin is a little pothole in the highway, which is life, then the problem of sin, it's a problem. Because, yeah, it's a pothole. And I should probably avoid it. But you know what happens if I don't avoid it? A, maybe nothing. Like, maybe no big deal. I just bump the car, I spill the coffee, no big deal. Okay, B, maybe it throws my alignment out, and I gotta go to the shop. I gotta spend a few hundred bucks to get the alignment fixed. But you know what? I'm okay with that. If we think of sin as a little pothole, and God came and solved the problem of sin by filling the pothole, then we're going to think of God's goodness, and we're going to say, wow, that was, that was nice, God. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. And that's about it. If, on the other hand, sin is a big problem, and we think about it, and we reflect on it, and we realize that the problem of sin is a weight that is heavy and bigger than we can really bear 
Therefore, our understanding of the grace of God gets proportionally bigger as well. If we're driving down the highway of life, we recognize that the problem of sin is not a small little pothole, but it's the giant flaming sinkhole in Turkmenistan known as the gate of hell. Have you guys seen this thing? Have you guys, this thing is, this is a real thing and it's a sinkhole and I only read some headlines so I didn't go super deep into what it is, but I guess it's literally like there's gas coming up from the ground and it's on fire all the time and it's been like that for like 20 years. And the president of Turkmenistan recently said, it's time to fill this pothole. And all the scientists were like, uh, you got, any, you got any plans? Like, I don't know where the gas shutoff valve is to stop the burning fire. This is a big problem. What does it look like to live our lives as divine poetry? I suggest that the first thing it looks like is living lives where we regularly, maybe even daily, practice a pretty radical, countercultural, distinctly Christian thing, which is we practice confession. I grew up in the Lutheran church, and the liturgy, the prayer of confession that I learned was that, Lord, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, both by what we have done and by what we have left undone. A prayer crafted, I think, to help us as humans really acknowledge the weight of sin in our lives and in the world. But we practice confession not because we want to just wallow in pity or just like become depressed by like, oh my gosh, sin's so big of a problem. It's just like, man, I can't believe how, how bad this is. That's not the purpose of confession. The purpose of confession is to honestly confess to God so that We can be reminded, as we feel the weight of sin, we can be reminded just how good news it is that God has forgiven us once and for all. If our life is a piece of artwork, maybe like a Monet hanging on the wall, God didn't just choose to come buy a beautiful piece of artwork. God saw that beautiful piece of artwork and saw that it had been thrown in the trash, torn to pieces, and smudged with all sort of filth. And God chose to buy the filthy artwork in the trash and bring it out and restore it. The practice of confession is a reminder of just how great God's love is for us. Which brings us to the second thing I think it means to live life as a work of divine poetry. It means first, confession, and it means second, celebration. And what we celebrate is this truth. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in the dumpster of our transgressions. The phrase that really jumped out to me is this, this, this little one in the middle. God is rich in mercy. And then the next line says, And God wants to put on display the incomparable riches of his grace. um, I've had this idea for for a long, long time, this this thing I wanted to do, uh, my brother and I have wanted to do, and um, finally, just recently, it it came together. Uh, My brother and I grew up sailing 
on our little lake in northern Minnesota. And this summer, uh, Kenneth, my brother, my dad, and I are going to go on a five-day ocean sailing trip on my brother's boat. It's currently uh, docked in Rhode Island. And we're going to sail it from Rhode Island to where he's going to move it uh, to a different location up in Maine. And I'm excited about this. So it's been about 25 years since I've sailed. No, I sailed like for two hours last summer with my brother. But it's been about 25 years since I've done any longer really serious sailing. So I've decided, okay, I need to to do some, I need to remind myself. You know, I need to do some Googling and some YouTubing so that I remember how to sail. And on top of that, not sure if you're aware of this, but sailing on a lake in Minnesota is different than sailing on the Atlantic Ocean. Those two different bodies of water. Now, as happens, maybe you've experienced this, when you're doing the Googling and the YouTubing, there's these little bunny trails that just show up. Ooh! Oh, look at that bunny trail. Where does it go? One of the bunny trails that shows up when you're watching videos on sailing is tours of the world's biggest mega yachts. How do you, how do you not click on that? How do you not go there? And it turns out there's rich people in the world. And when I say rich people... I don't mean rich people like, we're rich people. We're, you know, top 1% of the planet, top 1% of world history, and that's great, and that's wonderful, but then there's like, there's another universe of rich people out there whose volume of money is so incomprehensible that they just, they spend it on these things. So recently, I don't remember how long ago, somebody built what is now the biggest, most expensive mega yacht in the world. Uh, Here it is. There we go. Um... The guy spent $8 billion building that thing. <laughs> it's, it's really cool. I don't know if I recommend wasting your time watching the videos, but, you know, it's your choice. Um, here's my observation. Really, really rich people, it seems. Actually, I think this might be true of all of us in some way, but really, really rich people, it seems, really uh, enjoy putting their riches on display. They like buying things and building things and having things created so that they can sort of put on display. I mean, these boats literally sit anchored out in a bay most of the days of every year doing nothing, and then they get used every once in a while. You know, I don't know how great this this, um, metaphorical comparison is, but this is why I followed this little bunny trail. Uh, Paul said that God is... Rich in his mercy. He's rich in his grace. He's rich in his kindness. And you know how God wanted to put his riches on display? God put his riches on display by giving you life. Which brings us to the third critical practice of people who want to live our lives as a work of divine poetry. It requires that we make a decision. And that decision is this. We live in a life and death world. Sin is deadly. It's spiritually deadly. It's relationally deadly. It can be physically deadly. It can be environmentally deadly. Sin is deadly. And God has given us the choice to reject sin and receive from him the free gift of life and choose 
to live life. But we know that even if we've already received that gift and we're trying to live that life, we have this nasty habit of turning our back time and time again. And so Paul makes this little comment as he's expounding here on what does it mean to um, embrace this gift of God, this free gift of God, by faith, not by works. And and he includes that little line that jumped out to me, and, and Paul uses it actually a bunch of times, both in this letter and in some other letters of his, He says, what does it mean to to choose life? Well, whatever it means, it means not by works. And again, there's a million ways we could go in this, but I want to to make an observation about some of the challenges I think we face as humans. I know I do. As we try to choose to reject the death which comes through sin in this world and embrace the life God gives. Um, See, God made us and wants us to find our worth in the fact that he made us. But instead of finding that so often in my life and maybe in your life, instead, we love to measure our worth. Go to the next slide. Uh, We love to measure our worth by our work. Am I right? Right? How valuable, how meaningful, how important is my life? Well, I'm just going to take the volume of my output, my productivity, my efficiency, the quality of my work, whether other people give me accolades for my work, and I'm going to add that up, and that is the value I assign to my life. Now, it could be, it's sort of understandable that maybe we, we as humans tend to find our worth in our work, because Paul says right here in the scriptures, God made us to do good work. So it should be okay for us to want to do good work and to even celebrate the good work. But even though it's okay for us to do that, it becomes a problem when we find our worth in it. So how do I, how do I disentangle this? And the simple observation, which is simple to state, but the tricky hard thing to live, is that God made us to do good works, yes, but not to find our worth in our work. If I may, uh, again, just a personal illustration. Um, I mentioned this in the All Church email, you know, and I don't need to mention it, you know it, but we're, we're two years into this COVID pandemic, right? And man, over these two years, there's been um, the heartbreak of sickness, of loss of life, uh, for some of us people we know and love dearly. Uh, there's been just the, the challenge of things are changing and the numbers are changing, the hospital situation is changing and the variants are changing. And, and then in the midst of that all, we're a church wanting to faithfully respond in God's love to the world around us. I don't know if, if you've noticed this, but churches in our country have disagreed on the appropriate way to respond to the COVID pandemic in all of its different forms. And in that vein, we as a leadership team at the church, the council, the staff, you know, myself, many of you as well that we've talked to at different times, we've just said, so what do we do? How do we do this? Now, what we've been doing, and, and I say this just to sort of remind us the posture we've had, is we've said, you know what? I think that thinking about and caring about public health is an act of Christian love and compassion. We should not act out of fear. We should act out of love. And, and so we're going to 
choose to mask and buy a new air filtration system and for a while go online and, and do social. We're going we're gonna to try to do all the things because we believe that is a good expression of God's love. And that's changed and ebbed and flowed throughout the season, but that's what we've been trying to do. And, and I hope um, that that is meaningful for us. But here's why I share this, um, really. Um, if I'm honest, this season and all the decisions that have had to be made, uh, even though none of them are my decision individually, I certainly feel the weight of those decisions. And this is a great example of a time when I can easily be tempted to think, if I make the right decision, then I'm a good pastor. Then I've demonstrated my worth. Ooh, but if I make the wrong decision, if people don't like the decision, if, if I'm making a mistake, well, then maybe I'm not. Fill in the blank. What about you? Where do you do this in your life? Because I think all of us are so tempted to take the choices we make, the actions we choose, the words we speak, and while doing good works is so important, man, it's impossible to live a healthy life if we find our worth in those works. And here's the good news. Here's what what God invites us to do. He invites us to remember that God made us. The value of an artwork is determined by the skill and quality of the artist who made it and the quality of the artwork he made. Well, God is the perfect creator. He is the eternal, perfect, loving father, and all of his artworks could not possibly be more valuable than what he has made. And therefore, our worth is found only and explicitly in the fact that God is the one who made each and every one of us. And we never find our worth in our work. Rather, our good work is an expression of our worth. God wants us to take the the floodgates of his love that he wrote into our lives and break open the dam so that it would pour forth, forth in the world around us, not to prove anything, but to celebrate what he has already proven and bought for us. Anybody, can I get, there was like a rumbling of an amen. Can we just? But of course, that brings us to what is always the most critical part of any gathering for worship, of any reading God's word, of any reflection on our lives. Um, We can know God's word front and back and still not choose to live in the truth that God invites us. So we ask every week, what is your move going to be? And I want to suggest just two simple things. First, you want your life to really be characterized, not by trying to prove your worth every day, but by trying to express God's goodness because you already know your infinite value, then the somewhat counterintuitive foundational practice is that we practice confession. And not just as a rote habit, but we decide that we're going to risk a little more honesty about what's really going on in our hearts and in our minds. And I'd like to encourage you to consider this in two ways. First, would you consider, maybe even daily, maybe every day this week, it doesn't have to be long, but maybe even daily, confessing to God whatever sin or brokenness you see inside of you. And risking, taking that risk to say, and I'm going to be real honest with God about what that is. I mean, I know he already knows, but it's amazing how hard it is to say 
even to God when nobody else is in the room, what you know God already knows, but you can't even put it on your lips. But second, if you have someone in your life who's demonstrated the trust and the integrity and the confidentiality, would you consider practicing confession to another person? Because there's something transformational about looking a person in the eye and giving them the chance to see you for who you really are, both the good and the ugly. And if they're a faithful person, allowing them to say to you, God has forgiven you. Would you practice confession this week? Not so that we can wallow in whatever mess or dirtiness is in our lives, but so that we can celebrate the good news that God has taken us out of whatever filth there is, and he paid the price so that he might restore us to the beauty for which he created us. Which brings us to the second practice, which is, I'll go back to it and I'll say, write some poetry. But let's be a little creative about this. Write some poetry. Again, I love writing poetry. Get out some paper. Think about the days you have in front of you and ask yourself, how can I creatively express God's goodness this day? How can I celebrate creation? How can I celebrate the fact that our God is a creator? He's an artist. He's a craftsman. He created us, and we get to create beauty through all of our lives each and every day. Celebrate creation somehow in your life this week. Here's my closing thought. Um, so I decided to take what felt to me like a risk. It's always interesting examining you know, all that goes on in your heart when you decide to put yourself out there, but I decided to do what felt to me like a risk, and I, and I read you a poem that I wrote, and I thought about it, and I prayed about it, and I, I got feedback from a couple trusted friends, and, and, and then I read it to you, and, and whether it's good or not isn't the question. The question is this, is, this is part of who I am, and I wanted to share it. When God, the divine artist, wanted to express his love, you know what he did? He made you. And then, when sin came and took that beautiful artwork of his, and smudged it, and smeared it, and tore it. He gave his life to save you. Would you pray with me? God, as we've already acknowledged, uh, we confess. We confess that we are in bondage. We're slaves to sin. And no matter how hard we try... We can't think our way out of it. We can't free our way out of it. We cannot free ourselves from the power of sin. We're stuck. God, we confess that we have sinned against you. And we have sinned against one another. We've done it in our thoughts. We've done it with our words. We've done it with our deeds. We've done it both by what we've done and by the things we've left undone. God, we confess we have not loved you with our whole hearts. 
But God, we read today the good news that you looked at the brokenness of sin in this world and in our lives and you did not turn your back, but instead you came down to be with us and you gave your life. You paid the price. You bought us even in our tattered and broken state and you paid the highest price for the most broken pieces so that you could have the joy of restoring us. God, with that truth be freeing and life-giving, joy-producing in each of our lives so that through confession, we might exuberantly celebrate the good news of you, our God, whose love is expressed in and through each and every one of us. Amen.